0: when we look at suicides there's different theories the one that i like the most is something that's called the uh, interpersonal psychological theory of suicide developed by dr joiner um who is a uh, uh, someone that i has been a bit of a mentor to me that i absolutely uh, adore and this idea that when people experience tremendous pain they don't feel connected they don't have a sense of belonging in their in their community. They feel that they're a burden and they have acquired the capacity for self harm. We those folks are at increased risk of suicide. And in fact, folks that, that do attempt suicide show us all of those things.
1: Uh-huh. Welcome to St. Louis In Tune. I'm your host, Arnold Stricker, along with co-host Mark Langston. St. Louis In Tune focuses on issues that impact and connect the greater St. Louis area. Our topics include the arts, crime, education, employment, faith, finance, food, health, history, housing, humor, justice, and sports. So I want to introduce Dr. Bart Andrews, who's Chief Clinical Officer at Behavioral Health Response. They're in Creve He's the immediate past chair of the Missouri Suicide Prevention Network. He started at BHR as a crisis intervention clinician in 1998 and has dedicated the last 17 years of his life to suicide and crisis intervention. He is a person in recovery and a suicide attempt survivor. Dr. Andrews believes that the path to suicide prevention must be framed within the context of relationships, community, and culture and that suicide is a community health problem which everyone can help to address. Mm. Dr. Andrews, welcome to St. Louis in Tune.
0: Oh, Thank you uh, both so much for having me on the show and and talking about this very important topic.
1: It is a very important topic. When I was in the school business, one of our greatest fears was a student uh, committing suicide because what happened— several times was there was a domino effect, it, like it almost gave permission to other people to engage in that same form of violence to themselves. And it's, it's very disheartening to families. And let's, let's frame this up a little bit and, and build from the foundation. I think everybody knows about suicide, but what are some of the factors that contribute to an individual wanting to do something like that?
0: It's a really important question. I think one of, one of the biggest challenges that we have is that we don't value suicide deaths the way that we value other deaths. So the level of research and understanding we have a suicide is uh, paltry compared to other things. When we look at suicides, there's different theories. The one that I like the most is something that's called the, uh, interpersonal psychological theory of suicide developed by Dr. Joyner, um, who is a, uh, uh, someone that I has been a bit of a mentor to me that I absolutely, uh, adore. And this idea that when people experience tremendous pain, they don't feel connected. They don't have a sense of belonging in their, in their community. They feel that they're a burden.
2: Mm-hmm
0: and they have acquired the capacity for self-harm, We those folks are at increased risk of suicide. And in fact, folks that, that do attempt suicide show us all of those things. Typically, you're gonna see tremendous emotional pain. There is a sense, a perception. Now, this is really important for family, friends, parents listening out there. It's a perception of feeling like they don't belong, hmm. right? Um, and and we know that burdensomeness, a sense of burden, there, there's kind of this math that goes along that my death is more valuable than my life. Mm. We see this particularly with middle-aged men, right? Um, uh, for lots of different reasons. And, and the other thing that's really important that we talk about is it's incredibly difficult to kill yourself. This idea that, 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 this is an easy thing to do or that people who attempt suicide are cowardly, it's the exact opposite. In fact, the research shows that people who attempt suicide have a higher pain tolerance than people who don't. Um, one of my favorite stats is, of the last like 60 Tour de France winners, um, uh, four of them have killed themselves. Um, so that's a rate, that percentage is phenomenal, right? Um, um, and Tour de France winners are not weak, cowardly people. Um, physicians have a higher suicide rate um, than the general population, which is also something that commonly known. So, so if you put all these things together, tremendous emotional pain, not feeling connected, not, not feeling like you belong, feeling like you're a burden, um, and, and the acquired capacity to, to harm oneself. This is why one of the things I talked about, uh, uh, firearms in your home. If you've got firearms in your home that are accessible to family, friends, stop it. Um, because people, when they're depressed, if they have access, just having a firearm in your home. Increases risk that someone in your family will die by suicide by 10 to 20 times. If that person, if you've got people with substance use or depression in your home, uh, if you've got firearms in your home, the the risk um, goes up even more. Mm. Um, And and the the reason for that, I want to be clear about this. Firearms don't make people have suicide thoughts. That's simply not true, right? Um, The problem with firearms is that the, uh, the, the fatality rate on suicide attempt with a firearm is like 94%. It's really high. So um, there aren't a lot of firearm suicide attempt survivors out there. Mm -hmm. Um, So if people are in a bad spot and those factors are in play that I talk about and they have access to a firearm, that's a real problem. And, in fact, in Missouri, 60% of our deaths are are firearm-related, suicide deaths
1: are firearm-related. Wow. Wow. So in, in a family member looking at other family members or a friend or a neighbor or their children or kids who have uh, parents who are approaching middle or later uh, age, what are some things to look for? Are there, are there warning signs? Are there yeah. some kind of uh, tells that, that people need to be aware yeah. of?
0: No, not really. I'm going to surprise you. We're going to turn everything you ever heard on your head. You, you, we've been pushing these ideas of risk factors and warning signs of people for so, year, so many years. And, and, and the, the primary thing that that's accomplished is making family members feel guilty and horrible after someone dies of suicide. That Somehow they miss the sign. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, So so we're going to we're going to talk about what things that you can do realistically. There isn't some magic um, uh, uh, list of warning signs or risk factors that, you know, you need to do something. Um, But but there are some things that I will tell you that we need to be aware of or or that you should be acknowledging. One, if people are talking directly about suicide, if they're talking about uh, statements like I can't go on, I can't take this anymore, there's no point. When people are talking about having lost hope or being overwhelmed, pay attention to them. If people are talking about suicide, we need to take those statements at face value and find out more but the idea that you can the idea that you can there's this list of warning signs and you're going to identify people in your life who are at risk of suicide i promise you for every suicide attempt where the person had those warning signs there were 100,000 other people that had the exact same cluster of, of presentations and they didn't try to kill themselves so we tend to bombard people with these these idea that in association i belong to the American Association of Suicidology years ago we created this kind of warning sign mnemonic is path warm we don't use it anymore because we've learned that warning signs aren't particular helpful other than making people feel guilty after the fact. Instead, I like to focus on this idea of being aware and present for the people in your life. Human beings, we are amazingly good at detecting when people aren't doing well right? This, this idea that somehow we need to train folks to know when folks are, are, are not in a good space is, is nonsense. As human beings, we're incredibly empathetic. We're really good at recognizing when people are struggling. Pay attention when people are going through a change, when you've seen the change in their mood. Pay attention when they're not doing as well. Pay attention to the folks in your life. And this is really important. Don't be afraid to ask people, about suicide. I think this is one of, the, if, if there's anything that people leave the show with is that we need to be able to ask people, I'm worried about you. You've been, you've been down for a bit and I'm I'm wondering if, if, if things have gotten so bad that you've been thinking about suicide. Wow. We need to make it okay to have this conversation. That- I, I was just actually on an interview for Vice Magazine and they're doing a, they're doing a, a long expose on these pro suicide websites, um, and, and they're horrible. These are unconscionable websites. The people that run them are horrible people. I'm not going to mince words. It's really bad. But the reason that people end up on these websites is because we've made it so hard for people to talk about suicide with the people that they're around with every day i right? find I find
2: it difficult to ask are you thinking about suicide i don't know why that's difficult for me to to come to someone that i love very much and say are you thinking about killing yourself to me that just takes ratchets it makes it up to that next level and i guess it shouldn't be uh, i don't want to put that thought or that seed into their head that hey you know what maybe i haven't been thinking about suicide maybe that's something i should consider here i'm probably wrong in that thinking is that right
0: Oh, I'm so glad you brought this up. This myth is still out there. In fact, all the evidence we have suggests the exact opposite. People feel better when we ask them. Um, so, so this idea that you plant the seed in somebody's head by asking them, are you thinking about suicide? Is uh, I don't know what the correct word, but I think the scientific word for that is utter nonsense. Um, <laughs> not, not even, not even remotely true. And in fact, what's even more compelling about this is that the research we do have suggests that when we don't ask people who are having thoughts of suicide, if they're having thoughts of suicide, they feel worse, not better. Hmm. I also want to honor what you said, though. It's a scary question. I've asked the question probably thousands of times in, in, in my career, and it's still a hard question to ask. Now, now, I will tell you, in a clinical setting, I don't hesitate. But asking friends and family that question is really hard. But the reason it's hard is because we're afraid of the of an honest answer. Which is really should really tell us why it's so important to ask the question. Um, we're, 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 we we want to. Um, it's kind of like when we ask people how are you doing. You don't really want an honest response, right? You, hey, Bob, how are you doing? You don't really want Bob to say, "Well, I'm, I've actually been really depressed. My wife left me. I'm thinking about killing myself." Right. That's not the answer we're typically looking for, um, because because we're not prepared for that, and we just want to always assume everything's going to be fine. To suicide culturally, we have so much baggage. Like just just here's an example: the baggage we have culturally on suicide. But people still use the term commit suicide, right? We only use the word commit in front of really um, bad things, crimes and sins, commit murder, commit rape, commit fraud. What other wonderful word do we use in front of it? We, we, we use it in front of suicide because it used to be a crime against the crown uh, right. and against against God. It was yep. a sin, right? Yep. right? And so we use this word commit. So buried in our actual language is, is a message to people struggling with suicide that we're going to think horrible things about you if you tell us you're having thoughts of suicide.
2: Now, now one, one, one more added to this is that if I, if I ask you that question and now you say, Uh, Yeah, matter of fact, I am thinking about uh, ending it all and and just getting away from it all that way. I mean, I can help you if you're choking with a Heimlich maneuver. I can help you if you're having a heart attack with CPR. But if you say, I want to kill myself, I I would be going, oh, I better get you help. Yeah,
1: great question, Mark.
2: I don't know. What do I do then? <laughs> great question.
0: It's a great question, and I have a really simple answer um, that I'm, I'm going to, uh, for, the, for the family environment of this show, um, I'm, 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 I'm going to soften. First of all, don't be a jerk, right? right. So if someone discloses to you they're, they're having thoughts of suicide, that's probably one of the most scary things they've ever done in their life is actually disclose that right? So what's really important is that we listen and validate them. Here's the, here's the funny thing. People instantly think I should try to talk them out of it or, or tell them how amazing life is. That's the exact opposite. Instead, you should say, I'm so glad you told me that. Tell me what's going on. This is important. You're important. Your life's important. One of the most amazing things is that people who have had suicide thoughts will tell you that when they're allowed to explain what's going on, it helps them feel better. When we try to minimize their pain or tell them, like, here's the thing, a common response to a youth is, you have so much to live for. Oh, my God. This kid is 16 and thinking about suicide. They're not playing around here. If they, if they felt like they had so much to live for, they wouldn't be in the place they're in, right? That's Telling right. them that makes them feel worse, not better. So the first is to just be polite, gracious, understanding, and let them tell you what's going on two it's a really important question and there's 24/7 resources available for all you all out there right there's the national suicide prevention lifeline it's 24/7 it's answered all over the country, and part of our job, my agency, Behavioral Health Response, we're one of the member centers that answers those calls all over the country, right? We are trained so that people who have people in their life that are struggling with suicide can call us and say, hey, I'm, I've got my friend here. I was talking to my friend. He was talking about suicide. What do I do? We will help you with that. So so there's always assistance available for you 24-7. Sometimes people just need to talk about it, right? And there's more specialized training just anybody can get. But, but the, the two steps that I give folks is if you ask, be understanding. Let them tell you what's going on. Offer to help get them connected with care. And then make sure you connect them with the Suicide Lifeline or you call the Suicide Lifeline. Um, and, and, and let them know. And that, that number, 1-800-273-8255. Say that again. One 8255
1: Now let me ask you this: there, and maybe you will debunk this, or maybe you will validate this, because in the past I have heard that okay, some of some of this relates to mental health, and some of it could be environmental—the stressors or pressures you're put under. How many uh, individuals who do carry out suicide? have had a history of mental illness and yeah. or, or poor mental health, and how many have been, like, in comparison, just environmental pressures, job, family, or other kinds of situations?
0: Yeah, you, you've hit upon a, a, what is a very active debate in the suicide prevention community. Uh, there is, there are two camps of folks. Um, there are a camp of folks that believe that everybody who, uh, attempts suicide is suffering from a mental illness. And you've probably heard the stat that 90% of people who die by suicide, um, uh, were suffering from a mental illness before their death. Um, there is another, camp that I myself am in that says this is a bunch of bunk and I'm going to tell you why it's a bunch of bunk. Um, so one, um, the way that we get this number 90% of people who die by suicide have mental illness is we do these wonderful things called psychological autopsies and psychological autopsies are amazing tools. After a suicide death an expert's brought in to review medical files, interview family members, all this kind of things, and we do learn a lot and, and psychological autopsies are something that are very valuable tools. But part of the psychological autopsy is is um, providing a diagnosis and determining, did this person have a mental illness or not, right? Here's what we find, though, when we look at psychological autopsies. If, if you present a, uh, an expert on somebody's life information and you tell them they also died by suicide, they are uh, likely to say that person had a mental illness. If you give that, that expert the same information, but don't tell them the person died of suicide, they will only say that person had a mental illness about 30% of the time. So what we know is that when someone dies of suicide, we tend to believe they had a mental illness, right? So so it's a biased evaluation, and you, and, and it's a post-death diagnosis. In other countries, and now the CDC just put out a report, about 50% of people who died by suicide had a pre-existing mental health diagnosis. That's in the U.S. If you go to other countries, if you go to China, they only find that the person who died of suicide uh, met diagnostic criteria for mental illness about 20 to 30% of the time. So how do we explain this huge variability and all these different numbers that folks are coming out with? And and the the answer to this is that we have pathologized human behavior when people are in emotional pain and they're struggling, if they have a crisis in their life culturally in the U S we have said you have a mental illness, we, we have culturally created this concept of, of if you're in emotional pain, if you're struggling, if you think about suicide, then you are mentally ill, um, as opposed to this being a true concept. Now, this gets really complicated, but 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 the, the, the way to view this is that people who tend to be struggling with suicide are people that we tend to label as being mentally ill. That doesn't mean they're mentally ill, but we tend to classify them as such, what we do know is that people who do suffer mental illnesses are more likely to die of suicide. Uh, people with depression are about 10 times more likely to die of suicide than the general population. But mental illness is not the driving factor in suicide. In fact, people with severe major depression, only, you know, maybe 5 to 8% of those folks will die of suicide, right? Hmm. Maybe 5 to 8%, probably lower than that. So we know that the overwhelming majority of people with severe major lifelong depression don't die by suicide, right? So so mental health, mental illness doesn't explain suicide. And that's why we, we get back to this theory that Dr. Joyner talked about, this idea that we need to look at these other factors that drive suicide behavior, uh, uh, intense psychological pain. Do they feel uh, a sense of belonging? Are they connected? Do they feel connected? Do they feel like a burden? And do they have the capacity to harm themselves? If you want to talk about one of the easiest, easiest suicide prevention methods that we could take statewide is lock your firearms up, folks. If we could actually secure firearms and make sure that people uh, uh, couldn't get access to firearms when they're in a crisis, the suicide rate would drop dramatically.
2: Is is there any data that uh, the owner of the firearm is the one... I almost said committing suicide. Uh, yeah,
0: it's, oh, it's hard to stop. It took me. It took me years. It's uh, not. It's, it's
2: a hard right, right. to break. So, uh, is is it more of uh, someone that's in the household that doesn't own the the weapon, or, or is maybe that's that's research that's that we don't even have? Yeah,
0: no. Yeah, we kind of do know. I mean, we we know that for youth in households with firearms, the the the, the risk is phenomenally high. Right. Um, we know that um, the majority of suicides occur um, with a, a firearm that's already in the home. Although we did, there was some recent data that came out that showed a, uh, there was a significant number of people who bought handguns and, um, uh, and and attempted within like ten days of purchase was much higher than anybody anticipated. Huh. Right. Okay. Um, so we've got really good data that that reasonable efforts like universal background checks and waiting periods, substantial waiting periods, three week waiting periods. Mm-hmm. Um, reduce the suicide rate about 15% in your state. Um, uh, probably not going to fly in this particular state, but I'm going to keep talking about it. Good. Um, uh, uh both, uh, uh three week waiting periods and universal background checks are fully constitutional and just smart to be quite honest. Mm-hmm. Um, but the other thing is good education and good gun safety, right? The gun safety, if, if we, if we really practice good gun safety, which is that um, keeping your firearms locked up um, and making sure that you, somebody just can't access a, f- a firearm um, uh, at any time without having to go through some steps makes a really big difference, right? Um, mm-hmm. If you've got people who are struggling with substance use or depression in your home, I promise you and this is going to make some of your listeners really angry. I guarantee you if you have someone with a, with a struggling with a mental illness or a substance use problem in your home, they are more at risk from the guns in your home, then you are at risk if you didn't have guns in your home. I promise you the guns are making your home less safe, not more safe.
1: You know, Dr. Andrews, I want to ask this question. The intense pain, the connectedness, feeling as a burden to society or a family, and then the capacity to carry out a, a life-ending event, is this a something that is uh, linear? Does it one lead to the other? Can they kind of all happen at the same time? What is your experience with that?
0: Yeah, we actually do have some research on this, and there's, uh, as again with a lot of things around suicide, there's some debate going on but, but the, the, the best research I've seen came out of Harvard University and Dr. Uh, Milner out of Knox Lab, which is a really famous suicide um, study lab. They found that the, there's a there's a pathway to suicide and that pathway typically starts years earlier and, and, and people have ups and downs um, but gradually um, over time they're just doing worse and worse and then they kind of go into an activation phase where, where the pain gets really bad um, and over the period of uh, maybe a short uh, a couple of weeks to Two or three days, they kind of peak into this suicide crisis phase, right? Where where risk of death, risk of attempt is really high, right? You'll see some data that people um, uh, made the decision to kill themselves within five minutes, um, and and I want to point out that the research has lots of challenges with it. And that that is not how suicide works. People do not go from being fine and normal to having something bad happen and they're ready to kill themselves five minutes later. It just doesn't work that way. Hmm. You typically see a path where people are struggling for a long period of time. um, And and for some people, um, that struggle is not consistent. It's not like everything's bad all the time. It's bad, then they get better, Then it's bad, then it's better, and it's bad, and they get better. And then there's kind of a tipping point in that up and down cycle.
1: Like a trigger Um, event?
0: Yeah, it could be a lot of different things. Um, It could be a triggering event. Something, and and one of the things that we're learning, and I've got some friends that have done some really interesting research about this, some of this is about a sequence of events, and there's patterns um, that if if a couple of things can happen together, it might be more likely to trigger um, um, uh, someone. But again, it, it gets down to, think about it this way, when all these factors come together at the same time, for instance, you're in a bad place, right? Um, something uh, bad happens and you have access to firearms. You put all those three together and the risk of suicide goes up, right? Um, you take one of those out of the mix and the risk goes down. Um, and, and so we tend to see that there is a pattern, but but also what you said is very smart. There's a pattern and we've seen a, a pathway, but then sometimes all these things happen in just the right sequence at the right time where everything kind of falls into place in the most horrible way, right?
1: You know, if and, you... And that's what, Go ahead. Oh, go ahead. I was just going to give the uh, the 800 number. Folks, if you're listening to this and you're having some suicidal thoughts or you've contemplated that, please call 800 273 8255. There's someone willing to talk to you and work through the situations and help you. Listen. Uh, that's the important thing. Listen and ask you questions. That's 800 273 8255. Talk about isolation. I mentioned that earlier uh, before our break, and how many times youth—I'm uh, thinking of teenagers who will isolate themselves, but even now adults, because of COVID-19, are isolating yeah. themselves and not having that human contact, that personal interaction. Uh, how, how much does that come into play in, in uh, suicidal uh, issues?
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's one of those things that, one, when people do attempt suicide, they tend to be alone. Right. Um, And so the the more alone people time have, uh, the the time alone people have, particularly when they're struggling and feeling lonely. And we have a loneliness crisis in this country, It's something that we're not talking about enough, but we have a real loneliness crisis in this country. Um, so when folks are struggling, when they don't feel good, uh, also think about it like that sense of belonging, right? This, 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 this aloneness connects to the sense I don't feel like I belong. When folks feel like they're disconnected from a community, um, their risk certainly goes up. Now, we really aren't seeing increased risk with screen time, how much people are on phones or computers. That, that's really not panning out in the data. However, people who are disconnecting or feel disconnected, that is a risk. I mean, if you're online and you feel connected to people, online gaming. In fact, there's some evidence that online gaming is suicide protective mm-hmm. and improves people's mood and functioning. Um, if you're feeling connected um, uh, via this digital space, that's great. But if you're online and you're not feeling connected, or you're you're experiencing bad things, getting mm-hmm. bullied or having lots of negative interactions, that can that can make things worse. So there is no doubt that um, when people are alone and feel. Dis- disconnected, that is a big, big um, uh, explainer of what gets people on a path towards suicide. It's not the only thing. Now imagine feeling alone and like a burden. I'm alone. I have nobody. I'm not connected to anything. Um, also I feel like I'm a burden to the people around me or I'm a burden to society. Now your risk factor starts going up and then throw in access to lethal means and, and you've, you've, you've got a real problem, right? They're really interesting. This is something people don't want to talk about a lot in suicide prevention. The countries that have the lowest suicide rates in the world are incredibly communal, high religious, high faith cultures, and in fact, the highest suicide rate uh, countries are uh, typically former Eastern Bloc countries where religious faith and institutions were destroyed, and they don't have a strong sense of faith and community. So we know that that sense of connection, that sense of belonging, the sense of being a, a part of something larger than you, is so incredibly important. Um, and it's it's why I'm very concerned about the decline in in, in our faith based. Um, involvement in the U.S., which okay. is declining rapidly yes. um, as our suicide rates increasing.
1: I guess that would play into—I wrote down some words as you were talking—self-value, that I value myself, and I am valued in other people's eyes, and I, and I feel that I am a part of society in some way. I can see what you're talking about, that, you know, faith-based and community groups, you know, working together it increases my personal value if I'm involved in them
0: absolutely i think what's particularly important is i feel valued right i feel and connected right i feel and and i'm i'm a part of something that that's so we are genetically wired to, to live in tight knit social groups. There's a there is a great book about this idea of most of the things that kill human beings, um, heart disease, cancer, diabetes, all these sorts of things are mismatches between our environment and and the way that we're kind of wired to live our lives. And we were not wired to live our lives um, uh, separated from people. Um, uh, and 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 we were wired to live in really tight knit. Close knit communities with lots of communal contact. Have you heard about Blue Zones? Do you know about the Blue Zone studies? No. So so, and I can't think of the researcher's name, but there's this great book called Blue Zones, and they they went around and they identified these places where people live the longest, right? Where these where communities have these huge life expectancies, where everybody's living into their nineties, right? And and one of the things they found was didn't surprise people more physical activity, um, uh, uh, good healthy diets, right? But those things. But the most compelling feature of where people live the longest, tremendous amounts of community time, people spending time together on community efforts, being connected, being valued, feeling like you're a part of a group, right? Huh. In Western culture, we don't value that the way that we used to value that, right? right? It's always been a bit of a challenge. There are other cultures that are more communal, um, but, but we've gotten worse, right? And, and I think that one of the things that's certainly connected to our increase in suicide rate is that our social institutions are free. People don't bowl. Remember bowling leagues? How Everybody used to bowl together. Oh, yeah. We don't do things together as a community anymore. Um, and that's, that's a real challenge.
1: You know, I watched one of your presentations and it was the very first slide, and you were mentioning that you needed to update it. But what you were talking about was a different kind of physical ailments or physical things that disable us, i.e., cancer or heart attack or things like that. And then you talked about how much money was spent for those things over the course of a period of time, and then you also had up there suicide. Would you elaborate a little bit on that?
0: Yeah, yeah. So you can— you can tell how much a, a culture values something um, uh, by how much they spend on it, right? Um, what's really interesting is that uh, back, in, uh, uh, back in, like, 71, Nixon, President Nixon declared a war on cancer, and they rolled out, like, a billion dollars a year. And back in the 70s, I don't know, that might have been, like, $5 billion, right? Um, back, in, back in 1970, we spent a billion dollars on cancer prevention. We spent, at a federal level, um, uh, about $700 million. On, on suicide prevention, right? Um, it's, it's a farce. It's, 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 uh, it's absolutely unacceptable because we don't value these deaths. Culturally, we blame the person who dies in suicide. We have an attitude that if people are going to kill themselves, that we can't stop them, none of which is true. Um, and so where you can see where we've spent our money um, we've had good outcomes. We've brought uh, heart fatality rates down. We've brought stroke fatalities down. We've brought cancer deaths down. We've had miraculous out- HIV um, uh, and, and AIDS. Um, we've brought those deaths down. We spent real money to prevent those deaths. We don't do that for suicide. We just don't. We don't want to spend money on it. And, and, and hence we have the outcomes that we have. Um, because we don't invest resources in understanding and treating the problem.
1: So, how would that money be spent? Like, if 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 you had your ability to write the check, and how how would you divvy that out? Uh,
0: so, uh, we we do a two prong effort. Um, we would do we would invest a massive amount of money in clinical trial research. A massive amount of money in understanding um, the, the the cultural dynamics that make some cultures more suicide rich and other cultures um, suicide poor um, in terms of uh, a suicide safer, um, and we would in, we'd invest in our behavioral health care treatment system, which is grossly underfunded right now. If I'll give you an example, if, uh, if a um, an adolescent gets released from the hospital following a suicide attempt, they're gonna they're gonna wait two to three months to see their psychiatrist, right? that's how, that's how much delay and lag and the system is rationed. Okay. Um, we need to make sure that people have 24 seven access to quality behavioral health um oh. And, and we don't fund suicide intervention specifically. And so what we would do is we would, we would, we would pay more money for people to get the appropriate training. Uh, your listeners are going to love this. One of my favorite, your physicians, your, your, your psychologist, Uh, There are some new exceptions. Now, Missouri's done some of the changing. There's other states that aren't required to have good training in suicide assessment intervention. They're just not
2: what right
0: so yeah i know you, you, if you you would be lucky you'd be lucky if five percent of your health care providers have um good evidence-based training and suicide assessment and intervention and that would be generous on oh, my part
2: wow. um
0: so so we would invest in training and we would make sure that when people uh, when people are at risk of suicide we need to see them more often we need to provide robust care to them and we need to also keep them out of the hospital there's good evidence that the hospital is not a good approach um, but that means we need to get people engaged in treatment very quickly. You need, if you're in a suicide crisis, you, have to, you should be able to be, be seen by a competent behavioral health uh, uh, professional that day and be seen repeatedly in a short period of time until you're stabilized um, and, then, and then get ongoing active follow-up and care coordination until you're better and we simply we, were able to do that uh, in some small scales, but but by and large, that's not the kind of care people are getting out there.
1: Now, Dr. Andrews, talk a little bit about what uh, BHR does, what kind of uh, services they provide, and uh, how they can help uh, individuals who are struggling with this and also family members who who may yeah. need some more information.
0: Yeah, the good news is that you can call us 24-7. We've got master's-level, well-trained, compassionate Behavioral clinicians available 24-7. We can do outreaches. Right now we're doing that by uh, telephone and telehealth links um, where we can spend more time with you to help you get connected with care. We uh, have specific care designed for people that are struggling with a suicide crisis to make sure that one, if we can keep them out of the hospital, we do. If they need help getting in the hospital, we'll help them do that. And we do follow-up services. So even after an initial crisis um, and even if we do a, a mobile outreach for you, we'll continue to follow up with you until you're connected with care and you're doing better, right? And you can reach us, that suicide lifeline number I gave out, You, when you call that number from 314 or 636 area codes, that call is answered at my agency, Behavioral Health Response, right? So we are a part of a zero suicide effort in Missouri, um, and a zero suicide effort is really this really um, uh, important standardized care approach to making sure people get the best suicide prevention care possible and BHR is a zero suicide agency. Um, and so if you call us, we're going to do everything we can to help you.
1: Wow. Last question. You. This is very personal for you, isn't it?
0: Yeah. Oh, absolutely. So, so I, I lost an uncle. Yeah, I lost an uncle to suicide when I was 19. It was devastating for me and my family. And then I uh, I had a suicide attempt when I was 29 years old. Uh, uh, that really um, was an incredibly painful experience. I didn't even talk about that experience for 16 years after the that because I was so filled with shame and embarrassment about it. Now, I'll tell anybody and everybody, um, because it's nothing to be ashamed or embarrassed about. I'm grateful to be alive, and we need to get people talking about their suicide experiences in a really open, safe environment so we can, we can get, get that good news out that there. there's help available.
1: Okay, now, I, the last thing I would like for you to do is there's a family member out there listening uh, to this. There's someone who's contemplating. There are people who don't know what to do. What do you tell them?
0: I, I tell them that it's important to reach out. If it's just talking to somebody close to you, talk to somebody close to you. Suicide thrives in silence and solitude, right? Trust people. Let people in. Let them know what's going on with you. And two call us if you have a family member or a friend you're worried about call us we'll we'll talk to you and figure out what we can do we'll even call the person with you right so there's always hope there's help available 24/7 and it's so important folks know they don't need to go through this alone whether they're the ones fighting a suicide crisis or they have someone in their life that they think is struggling you don't need to do that alone reach out and call us and we'll help you
1: Call 800-273-8255, 800-273-8255. Dr. Bart Andrews, thank you for joining us today in a very, very important topic. We appreciate your time, and the information you've given to us is very valuable.
0: Uh, Thank you. for You guys did great. And and this is such an important topic. And uh, the listeners out there, thank you for listening to us. I I, I think that that, that you'll find there's help out there. Please reach out if you need it. We'll be there.
1: Let's have you back and uh, continue this conversation and keep this at the forefront of people's minds so they can know that uh, there is hope and that there's care and people listen out there. Thank you. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed what you heard, please take time to like and share this and other episodes of St. Louis in Tune that can be found on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. St. Louis in Tune is produced in cooperation with KWRH, 92.9 FM, and Motif Media Group. Thank you for listening. I'm Arnold Stripper.